0: Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place, I'm Jennifer Jewell. No matter what you might call it, rewilding, wildscaping, gardening for habitat, gardening for wildlife, backyard habitats, ecological gardening, The concepts of conservation plus biodiversity plus our gardens, wherever they might be, is not a new idea, although it is certainly newly imperative in our current world. These three concepts as a perfect trinity go back at very least to 1973, when the National Wildlife Federation kicked off their Garden for Wildlife program. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of this program, we're joined this week by Mary Phillips. Since 2014, she's been the head of the NFW's Garden for Wildlife, and Certified Wildlife Habitat Programs. In this big anniversary year, the programs are very close to realizing 300,000 cultivated wildlife habitats and gardens. Mary, this is work, and these are positive numbers we are so happy to be sharing. I am pleased to welcome you to Cultivating Place. Thank
1: you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: So you have a lot of titles that could go with your name, Mary. (laughs) I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself and maybe include in that the importance of plants or gardens in your life personally right now. Sure. Thanks so much. Well, I'm going to start out
1: personally. I'm a mom and a wildlife gardener and um, just love to be in that space. And um my professional title is that I'm the head of the Garden for Wildlife and Certified Wildlife Habitat Programs at National Wildlife Federation and I've been doing that
0: since 2014. Wow, so you are just completing 9 years, yes, right, yes, of yes. of this work and um before we get into what the National Wildlife Federation is doing and why and when they first kicked off this idea of Garden for Wildlife and Certified Wildlife Habitat programs. I want to go back just a little bit and and chat about you and your own kind of path to this place right now. Where were you born and raised? Start there.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah, I was born um, outside of Cleveland, Ohio, um, in Euclid, Ohio, and grew up though in more of the countryside near Chagrin Falls, Ohio. And um, we lived on seven acres, and the majority of that was woods. And I spent so much time exploring those woods with my dog <laughs> and my friends, and um, and kept a little photo journal. I still have it um, of all the different wildflowers. I was trying to catch you know wildlife too, but the cameras weren't as quick then, so <laughs> I didn't get I didn't get bees and butterflies, but I was trying, mm-hmm. and so I I just loved exploring that space, and and I I'm so delighted to be on this podcast because one of the things that is so important to me is that planting with these wildflowers and planting with native plants, which is the core of the program we're going to talk about in a minute, they've all co-evolved with the climate, the soil, and conditions of one place, and it gives a unique identity. Um, of natural history and a sense of place. And that's what I experienced as a kid. I mean, I so identify with those Ohio woodlands and those beautiful spring flowers. They're just a part of me and they're a part of, you know, what is unique to that space. And many of these plants have been used by indigenous peoples, early settlers, and they actually help shape the natural history and sense of place that's different from other spaces. And so that's really kind of the connection. And and it really goes back to those early days of exploring the world around me in nature. But I also had some really great influences. Yeah. I had um, my mother was a big gardener and both of my grandfathers were big gardeners. Two very different kinds of gardeners. Um, My one grandfather, my mom's dad was more sustainable gardening and big vegetable gardening and had beautiful landscapes and little nooks I could explore in as a kid and lots of wildlife around um, where my dad's dad was much more heavy on the lawn, (laughs) heavy on his prize, peonies, roses, snapdragons, beautiful color but they were almost like specimens and it and it didn't feel as accessible and and when thinking back when I'd sleep over at either their houses there was so much more bird song I'd fall asleep to at my my mom's parents house Uh, versus my grandfather's I mean my dad's my dad's so it was very interesting I mean it was subtle it's really looking back looking back at those pictures and really understanding the difference um, of the gardening styles
0: Yeah. Well, and it's funny that you mentioned that audio uh, memory that goes with that, because I I don't think we often consciously can pull that forward, but we know it when we hear it, right? Just like when you were saying that, uh, you know, those wildflowers of central Ohio and uh, that that is sort of home and that is that place for you. Like, I can't smell a ponderosa pine without feeling <laughs> like I'm at home at 8,000 feet in Colorado or Absolutely. that cognizance now of the fact that one of the garden styles you experienced was was silent, silent in a maybe not great way. Um, while the other one was full of life. That is, I think, a very powerful sensory memory and knowledge that we yes. all have if we tap into it. As
1: you were talking, I was like, oh, another sensory memory came to my my grandfather with the lawn heavy. <laughs> um, he was on the war with dandelions and he had this giant thing that looked like a syringe and he would just spend hours out there going after one dandelion at a time with this chemical. I don't even know what chemical was in there, but that is that smell of that, whatever oh, that yeah. chemical was also part of that that memory.
0: Yeah. Ooh, yeah, (laughs) I I have that one too. I wish I didn't, (laughs) (laughs) but I do. Wow. So you, theoretically, you grow up, you go to school. (laughs) What do you go on to study and what gets you to where you are now? Uh, And then we'll move into when you transitioned to the National Wildlife Federation.
1: Sure. So um, I uh, went to Arizona State University and had a great experience there, Um, was very interested in doing something in my career that was cause related and found a great program uh, that combined my communications, which is really an organizational communications degree with certificate program around nonprofit management and uh, uh, very heavy on fundraising, volunteerism, all of that, and basic administration and strategic planning for nonprofits. And it it was called American Humanics at the time. And they have a huge uh, center uh, called the Lodestar Center at Arizona State University for nonprofit careers. It's absolutely amazing. Um, But that got me into working with a number of nonprofits and I ended up getting a job at the American Red Cross um, and working at their national headquarters and um, just really liking the national uh, scope of nonprofits. And I worked in lots of different human service um, organizations at national levels for a while. And then I started my own consulting business that was working with over 40 different um, organizations for about 15 years. And as I was working with those organizations, as much as I love them, they were very youth and human service focused. I mm-hmm. kept noticing that the youth programs, the mentoring programs, I was really gravitating towards those that were getting kids into nature and really connecting to nature. And then I was always a gardener and I continued to garden, but I hadn't really found the whole native thing until later when my kids were, were born. And I basically then Really started transitioning in my gardening, but also in the work that I did consulting wise with a number of green organizations and many uh, more local here in the Chesapeake Bay region, which is Mm -hmm. where I live now. I live in Silver Spring, Maryland, Mm -hmm. and um, been working um, really understanding the impact of the watershed. And so I started um, transitioning into the green organization conservation space and discovered, especially having my kids getting them interested in gardening, getting them interested in nature we discovered um, the Certified Wildlife Habitat at National Wildlife Federation. So that's how I first learned about National Wildlife Federation.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, so about what year would this have been? So
1: that I learned about National Wildlife Federation about 2007, 2008, Mm -hmm. but then I ended up moving my consulting business into, into, I went through training as a Maryland master naturalist. I took um, some landscaping and gardening um, certification, and I ended up creating my own local conservation gardening consulting group um, where we were actually creating pollinator gardens and community gardens and moved into to uh, selling actually collections of native plants native to the mid-Atlantic region uh, at local markets around the the area here. So I kind of went from this big national focus to very uh, regional and very uh, focused in sustainability and conservation.
0: And then you kind of went back. I did. Okay. Yeah. So tell us about that. Okay, and, and first, before that, yeah. when you first learned about the National Wildlife Federation and their Certified Wildlife Habitat Program, did it illuminate new layers of this kind of work for you at that time, Mary? Or, yes. or did it just solidify what you had already known? Share a little bit about like the conceptual change that might have happened for you. Yeah.
1: Sure. Well, the wonderful connection to that program is I discovered it because we had been vegetable gardening and gardening with lots of beautiful flowers and um, we had a eastern box turtle come into our yard and my kids were three and five at the time and we were just like, wow, we don't know what to do with this. Do we leave it alone? Do we, whatever. And I Googled, you know, what do you do (laughs) when a turtle comes into your yard? I'm not too far from the Sligo Creek watershed. So we assumed it came up from the Creek, Mm -hmm. but we didn't know. And so that is how I found the national wildlife Federation site. And what I learned about were the elements of habitat that you could Uh garden and create a beautiful uh, native plant, which I didn't even know about native plants in those years. I mean, I generally kind of knew, but I had no details. Um, And so we went about creating at that point, using their guidelines, understanding food, water, cover places to raise young, that you could really create that kind of space in your yard. And it's great for wildlife and obviously for people too, because it's so much healthier. You're not using chemicals. And so my kids and I... I (laughs) I would go on little, you know, uh, adventures trying to find on the weekends to find, um, native plant nurseries. And at that time they were very far and few between. And so that was a real challenge. And so that kind of began my whole quest about, then once we did find them, we started seeing immediately, you know, more, more birds, more butterflies, um, and just a total kind of transformation of the yard that, my, I remember sitting and then and then working with some of the other gardens um, later on when I created the the business, school gardens. I mean, just thinking, gosh, if we could just have these pollinator gardens, millions of them all over, this would be amazing. Right. And I'm so grateful that. Fast forward, I was able to actually be part of a huge initiative that did that, but never would have thought that sitting around right. <laughs> with the students and the teachers just doing this and seeing the joy on these kids' faces, as well as my own kids' faces in our yard. Um, just the discoveries that are made in these beautiful Habitat Gardens.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh. And it's true. I mean, you go back to, you know, 2000, 2000- Like from 2000 until about 2015, 16, and like the the progress we have made, the leaps and bounds, and I know we have a long way to go, I know that, but the progress we have made is so satisfying to look back on because- um, you know, just what you were saying, like, I didn't even understand what were the native plants of my place, let alone that that was an important thing to conceive of. And native plant nurseries, like they were very hard to find in, you know, 2002, 2003. And now we can find them pretty much everywhere we go. We need more and, and we need them to to hold up an incredible standard. But we have them. So we have a place to start. So. This turtle introduces <laughs> exactly. this whole new world to you, which which yes. I love as a sort of creation germination story right there, Mary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Take us into how you then move from your work under the abundant backyard yes. into actually leading this initiative for the National Wildlife Federation.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, it was one of those things that, you know, you're Googling and you're thinking, well, gosh, maybe, you know, my kids are getting older and maybe I need a different kind of job. And because I had had the national organizational work before, I did do some Googling and that's how I discovered the role to lead the garden for wildlife certified wildlife habitat program it literally leaped out of the computer at me <laughs> and it was like such a blend of everything i had done to date that i couldn't believe it i really thought no this is made up this this couldn't be exactly what i've been visioning um and so i you know i applied and and got the job and that was that was may of 2014 as, as a matter of fact i just celebrated my um ninth anniversary
0: Since 2014, Mary Phillips has led the National Wildlife Federation's Garden for Wildlife and Certified Wildlife Habitat programs. In 2023, the programs are celebrating their 50th anniversary. We'll be right back after a quick break for more from Mary when she'll share about the history and mission of these landmark programs. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity cultivating places also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. Registration is now open for all Garden Open Days in the Conservancy's Open Days program through August plan your summer visits now. New programs and gardens continue to be added to the 2023 Open Days schedule since the publication of the print directory. New additions are noted in each Open Days online listing. Be sure to check back for more additions as the season evolves. Registration for open days after August will be available approximately two months prior to the open day itself. Be sure to sign up for the Garden Conservancy's email list and keep an eye on your inbox for these announcements. That's all at GardenConservancy.org. Hey, it's Jennifer. So when I think about the concept of open days and garden visits of summer, alongside the idea of our gardens being crucial spaces of welcome and support for wildlife and biodiversity writ large, and then we think about our gardens in their summer fullness, I wonder, who is visiting my garden? And who feels invited into my garden? In the early morning? in the midday, in the early evening, in the dark of night, who wants to visit? Who do I want to have visiting? There are so many resources on how to extend these Open Garden Day invitations to our birds, our bees, butterflies, lizards, frogs, dragonflies, mammals. What are we waiting for? Who is visiting your garden? Send us pictures, share anecdotes, plant and plan for these Open Garden Day visitors. And that is all they need. What are any of us waiting for? We all need less lawn, less concrete, less control and more liveliness. We're back now to our conversation with Mary Phillips, head of the National Wildlife Federation's Garden for Wildlife and Certified Wildlife Habitat programs. The Garden for Wildlife initiative is in its 50th anniversary year. The program is very close to realizing 300,000 cultivated wildlife habitats and gardens. As we come back, Mary is sharing more about the history and mission of these landmark programs.
1: So National Wildlife Federation has been around for over 87 years. It was founded um, in the 1930s. and, And it is important that it's National Wildlife Federation. And the federation word is key because it's a federation of lots of different groups. It's a fascinating organization because it's very bipartisan in the way because it has people from all different backgrounds. So it's gardeners, it's hunters, it's fishermen, it's conservationists in general. It's really those groups were the the ones that came together to form this federation. And um, today it is um, nationwide. It has um, six regional offices nationwide doing a variety of everything from on the ground, grassroots, habitat work to advocacy work. Um, And we also have a network of 52 state affiliates that do also a variety of work um, in all those spaces. A lot of it is to um, advocate for conservation-friendly policy. A lot, you know, depending on where they are, it could be very focused on water, it could be focused on grasslands. It just depends, you know, obviously on the geography of where they are. as well as I'm excited to say we have 26 of those 52 are very active with the garden for wildlife network and advocate for people to garden for wildlife where they live. You know, our mission is to help wildlife and people thrive.
0: Yeah. I will never forget the Federation now because I love how you just made um, that idea of this uh, group of many groups coming together Mm -hmm. for a single whole. And I am so grateful and impressed, right, that it includes so many, Mm -hmm. sometimes diverse, but also very clearly overlapping in some of their interests, groups of people who can sometimes feel at odds in our world. And I think when we come together with the right perspective, there is no reason to be at odds, but to be working together. And that's what this is demonstrating. Talk about the Garden for Wildlife program but maybe start with the certified wildlife habitat program when were they begun and were they always focused on native plants of people's individual places and especially maybe talk about the scope because i think coming from the mid-atlantic it can feel a little bit far away from northern california yes. <laughs> or or maybe interior you know nevada yeah. or wherever <laughs> um talk about the the scope but start with the development of these two programs sure so garden for wildlife is kind of the
1: overall encompassing kind of name of the movement and some people it is the programmatic work certify wildlife habitats is the signature program within that bigger umbrella and Certified Wildlife Habitats and the term gardening for wildlife really started to take hold and was launched by National Wildlife Federation in 1973. It was actually called Backyard Habitats at the time. Okay. And it was based on the research of two U.S. Forest Service researchers who were looking on large um, restored lands, public lands and others, and looking at those elements of habitat, food, water, cover and places for wildlife to raise their young that they would uh, make sure we're being um put into restoration areas and they found great success with having all those, those are the elements of habitat. So everyone needs it, wildlife needs it, we needed, But they then said, could you take some of those principles, those elements, and then actually apply them to small spaces, private residential spaces, and get some of the same results of increasing wildlife and benefiting wildlife. And they found from their study that you could. And we, uh, National Wildlife Federation, had partnered at the time and then launched this concept of... creating backyard habitat based on that research. uh, May 16th of 1973 was the article that came out in National Wildlife Magazine. And so that's why we're looking at this as our 50th year, but that's how it started. And then it, it changed over time To be, um, it was very, very intensive. There was a large staff at the time that could actually review, they would review pictures and people's plans, and people would, you know, do garden layouts and they would submit everything that they were putting in that hit those requirements of food water cover and places to raise young and there was encouragement and lists of native plants for different areas of the country it was harder again we weren't as internet <laughs> savvy 73 right, years right. ago obviously so there was you know it was in books primarily and eventually craig, craig tufts who was a longtime naturalist at national wildlife federation and then later david mizajewski who is still a naturalist with um National Wildlife Federation had created these amazing books that would give people how-tos and lots of lists and and so forth. So that was kind of where it started.
0: Yeah. And so what's interesting to me is, you know, this was 50 years ago. This was uh, 1973. Mm-hmm. Earth Day had already yes. gotten launched as an idea. What were the catalysts for people seeing that, Gardens and I, I mean, I think this is a great list uh, on on the website of uh, where people live, work, play, learn and worship. So you were you were talking about all of the privately held land, essentially in the country. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and there's a lot of it. Yes. And the importance of that land in helping to support reintegrate, you know, and just hopefully restore some connectivity for our wildlife on this continent.
1: That sums up perfectly what right. what but our were goal they is. were
0: they seeing like was there a, a watershed research or like Well, I think the research was the
1: US Forest Service Research that happened at that time that National Wildlife Federation, you know, collaborated with those researchers and created guidelines okay, based yeah. on their research. Okay. So they, you know, really saying. But I think the other thing was, and, I, and when I look back, I have a, a couple of those older books that are part of that time period. It wasn't like create a movement or anything like that. It's become a movement. And I'll talk yeah. a little bit about that in a minute. But it was really, um, you know, hey, this is beautiful beautify your you know space and you can attract birds butterflies and bees and we you still can do that (laughs) and that's still what we tell people and and that's still what we want people to do but it was more I think personal about just kind of have this beautiful space and and it should and should still be I mean that that's a motivator for everybody but I think the connectivity might not have, you know, been, you know, hey, if you do this, and everyone else does this, you know, we're, you know, restoring like this neighborhood, you know, I don't, I don't know that was so much in the mindset at the time. But again, I wasn't there then. So, right. <laughs> um, and, but what I've seen has been much more focused and much more focused on the residential, it took, you um, So for the last 25 years, we've run the Schoolyard Habitats program, Mm -hmm. which is part of uh, the certification program. And we've also just expanded, you know, into the whole, um, you know, places of worship and um, businesses and, um, you know, Corporate campuses and and all of that and actually there's over 200 public gardens, uh, botanic gardens that are certified uh, wildlife habitats. So yeah, yeah, so there's a lot out there. I think I think it's been an evolution, but I do call it a movement because it was at the forefront of what has now become, you know, our native plant uh, movement. But we were pushing native plants. What has happened now, and and of course, you may have had him on your show, is Dr. Doug Tallamy has really been an amazing spokesperson and raised the awareness of native plants in a way, and we partner very closely with him, and he has actually done all the research for our Native Plant Finder and Keystone Native Plants, which I can talk about in a minute, Um, but that's where we're leaning into, and we're also really have leaned into the sustainability, the no chemicals, I would say in the last two decades. Is something and really this last decade, even more so than it's
0: ever been. You know, it's funny because you've mentioned a couple of things that um, remind me just how long we have been at this exact kind (laughs) of work, but it it finally feels like it's getting a real foothold. I mean, Mm -hmm. you just said, you know, leaning into the no chemical thing and, and you think about the length of time. It has been since Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, right? right? And right. and I wish mm-hmm. I could say that you know it, it did help ban DDT, but mm-hmm. all research shows that there are eight hundred toxic chemicals yes. on the shelf at Home Depot yes. and Lowe's right yes. now that you can yes. buy without any certification or, yes. or regulation, and that just astounds and infuriates me. Yes. Um. <laughs> and you know you you use the word beautify, and I think one of the things that this is going hand in in hand with is the work I do, which is trying to elevate the way we think about gardening, period. And its importance, not just as this like very pretty, uh, but not particularly powerful activity. And, you know, I, I think of the work of Lady Bird Johnson and her fantastic native plant work and and advocacy, which was just as you said, right in the beginning of the conversation, Mary, like trying to help Texas look like Texas and Maine look like Maine and Colorado look like Colorado. And it was a little bit dismissed as a beautification project. And, you know, for those two things, the science and the beauty and the spirit to all come together right now at a time when we know we need them more than ever. This feels like a watershed moment. I mean, you have Your work really coming to the fore, you have the, the wildscaping and the, you know, rewilding and the native plant organizations, and it's great. So yes, Dr. Tallamy has been on the program a couple of times. And so we have links to all of those, but we will add them again. Take us back to the actual program. Like what is the structure at this point of Garden for Wildlife and then the Certified Backyard Habitat?
1: Yeah. So Garden for Wildlife, like I said, it's kind of overarching and it's really yep. overarching of the programs uh, of creating habitat where you live, work, play, learn, and worship. The Certified Wildlife Habitat Program is a system where people register um, and basically commit um, that they are following the requirements of providing the the different food, water, cover, places to raise young and sustainable practices. Um, and we recognize those people. There, There is just I mean, the the logistics of that is they apply, there is a processing fee, but that goes back into the program. And then they can buy signs where they can um, show off and educate others about the purpose of their particular wildlife garden. But big picture is right now, today, we have, as of may 287,700 certified wildlife habitats our goal for our um, 50th yeah it's very exciting 50th anniversary year is to reach 300,000 so that's why we say it's one of the longest and oldest um, you know habitat uh, native plant programs in the country because we do have that scale and that's one piece of it but generating all those habitats we have a whole program called community wildlife habitats where there are teams of people and we have over um, 600 um, of these different communities that actually rally you know the the participants the citizens and and people in their uh community to create individual certified wildlife habitats this has been a program that's been going on for 20 years they now generate about 30 to 40 percent of the individual certified wildlife habitats in that larger number wow um, and we also have all of our schoolwork we work with I think it's over 13,000 different um, schools um, nationwide that our whole education department is very engaged in creating through our EcoSchools USA program where they're doing a number of environmental actions within schools and schoolyard habitats and native planting is a a part of that pathway. So there's a variety of things. So there's a lot of programs um, in this whole area um, as well as we have a program called Sacred Grounds that some of our regions have uh, gotten funding for to work with congregations nice. to get congregations and the places of worship properties to be um habitat but then also to to connect that throughout the congregation community
0: yeah wow and i mean i i have read really impressive numbers that give me so much hope like 7 million people nationwide being involved in this and 4 million acres of wildlife friendly habitat being under this program, uh, which is fantastic. You know, it, it, I think it's important for listeners to hear those kinds of positive numbers when they hear things like 40 million acres of, you know, non-native, right. over-irrigated, overfed right. Right. uh turf grasses.
1: Right. And those are just estimates based on the average uh, sizes of the habitats that we have as part of the program. So the potential is there could be more um, mm-hmm. because we know people do have bigger properties that they have certified. And the other thing is, is actually we've be- we've become a little bit worldwide. Um, we have many certifications uh, in North America and also thirty-eight embassies around the world that have certified. Yeah, so it's exciting. <laughs> yeah,
0: nice. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. So tell us about what it takes to be certified other than committing to wanting to do this. And, you know, some of the, the elements that people are going to want to think about, like, does it matter how big or how little your garden is? Does it matter where it is, Mary? And, and how do you go through this process? And then we'll chat more about some of the adjacent programs like Plants with a Purpose.
1: Sure, sure. So basically, as I mentioned, there are these four habitat elements that are based on science. And then the fifth requirement is really uh, to commit to sustainable gardening practices. So when we look at um, food, what we're asking people to do is really, this is where the native plants come in primarily. And we're actually at this point, really trying to get people to strive for 50 to 70% of native plants in their native habitat space that they're creating, because we find that those concentrations actually help many more wildlife. And it's actually based on a study that um, uh, the research team at University of Delaware and, and with Dr. Dr. Talamy, and I think the Smithsonian was involved in this as well, where they actually followed um, chickadee broods in specific habitats and really found that those habitats that had at least 70% native plants and trees specifically in that mix supported the volume of insects that the chickadees needed to feed their broods. A chickadee for one brood of uh, babies um, needs 9,000 so that's a lot of insects that's a lot and that's really why we're trying to help people and lean into this connection about these host plants, um, your native plants host specific kinds of species, butterflies, moths, and other insects that are the base of the food chain. And they are the base of the food chain for about 96% of all terrestrial birds. Um, that's their main dietary um, you know, need. And that habitat's being wiped out. So if we wipe out these plants that support these insects, we're going to be wiping out not only the birds, um, obviously, if you're wiping out milkweed, monarch caterpillars, that's the only only plant that they can survive on. Um, so it's it's really important in that food category to help people have the right native plant list for where they live to provide this kind of food. And people also can do supplemental food like bird seed, but we, we really strongly encourage to start with the native plants and then you, know, you can supplement throughout the season
0: this is cultivating place i'm jennifer jewell mary phillips has led the national wildlife federations garden for wildlife and certified wildlife habitat programs since 2014. in 2023 the garden for wildlife program is celebrating their 50th anniversary we'll be right back after a quick break for more from mary when she will chat more about the five aspects for ensuring that your garden is a wildlife habitat. Stay with us, we'll be right back. Hey, it's Jennifer again. Anyone who has listened to me for any length of time at all will know that one thing that struck me in this conversation with Mary Phillips was the National Wildlife Federation's coordinating with the gardens and landscapes around places of worship, a joint endeavor with parishes and congregations of all faiths in a program they refer to as Sacred Grounds. And I would say, of course, that all of our gardens are sacred grounds. We worship there what we love, what we long for, what we envision and value for the future of all the lives we love in, on, and with these very sacred grounds known as gardens. Let us never forget or lose sight of the joy of this, the responsibility and pure privilege of being able to live our lives in support of our miraculous plant and animal and ecosystem friends. We're back now to our conversation with Mary Phillips, head of the National Wildlife Federation's Garden for Wildlife and Certified Wildlife Habitat Programs. The Garden for Wildlife initiative is celebrating 50 years, and they are very close to having. 300,000 certified cultivated wildlife habitats and gardens. As we come back, Mary is continuing to walk us through the things you need to include to ensure that your garden or backyard is an actual habitat. She has already covered the importance of food and forage, and she is moving us now onto water and the rest.
1: The nice thing about water is that many people, we do count it if you live within, um, you know, a, an area that might have a natural water source. So in my case, I live just a couple streets away from this amazing creek and the Chesapeake that goes into the Chesapeake Bay watershed. But we do encourage people to do in their own space even small water sources like a puddling dish for butterflies um, and insects, or a small bird bath or a fountain to have some kind of water and and to have a bubbler to keep it moving that keeps you know mosquitoes away. Or you can put the non toxic dunks to keep mosquitoes away that's always a question we get um but those are those are some easy ways to do water um in your in your space and meet that requirement
0: and then we go to cover and and one of the things that's interesting to me right is the importance of water not in great abundance necessarily right, right but specific as you were saying, sort of levels and layers of water. For instance, I didn't know that bumblebees don't drink water. They only drink nectar, but that's where they get their water, you know, and the importance of safe landing and or safe drinking for small rodents or birds Mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. you know, so it's, it's important to think about it as a process, yes. not just, uh, like a destination swimming pool or something. Yes,
1: yes, absolutely. I love how you describe it. That's perfect. Yeah, no, that's really important. And then cover also is a layered <laughs> approach, yeah, exactly. um, which I love. Um, and, and so one of the things we talk about a lot is leaving the leaves, um, you know, for the areas of the country that have a great leaf fall, um, really well, and, and I mean, I think everywhere there's deciduous, um, leaves that fall from various plants to leave some of those around the base of those plants. That is a great nesting and um, hibernation place for many types of insects. It's a really important toads, um, you know, reptile, like all those different um, types of wildlife need that kind of cover throughout the year. And then also, you know, if you're in a space with, you can have larger um, sources of cover, obviously shrubs, uh, Places for uh, birds to nest uh, or get nesting material, and then also um, larger snags or fallen um, wood, leaving some of that in some spaces for for other um, wildlife uh, to use as shelter.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know the cover, whether it is green mulch or it yes. is carbon brown mulch yeah. uh, like our leaves, or yes. you know maybe a light. What would we call that? An introduced mulch, right? Like a like a bark or something. Mm -hmm. Is the importance of understanding how thick, how thin, where to put it so that you're not drowning the crown. Like in my arid environment, you don't want to drown the crown of your trees or your shrubs, but but you need this litter layer and Nancy Lawson, the author of Wildscape and, uh-huh. and her presentation on in the book on some of the research being done about the importance of, you know, that cycle of life for ground or leaf nesting creatures and how they needed to get warm before they can hatch. And we're all out there because it's finally warm <laughs> and we, yes. we think it's time to clean up. And they're like, wait. Yes. I just need like three more weeks and then I'll hatch and then you can tidy up a little more.
1: Well, and that's a really good point because, um, the other source of cover, which is really easy to provide is those stalks of your spent plants that have, you know, gone to seed heads. Um, that a lot of them have hollow stalks and those do become places for insects to, um, and, and some solitary bees to stay over the winter and they don't emerge right away. No. Um to your point. Like, you know, and so leaving those like six to eight inches at a minimum um in yeah. your garden space until, and again, it depends where you are in the country, but you know, until frost has gone by and, and and all those different you know really I like to say like once the ground temperature is staying um around 50 degrees or more that's actually right around the time I think you can clean up
0: yeah and and one of the things that mm-hmm. I uh, I think talked about m- with a couple of other people doing mm-hmm. this kind of work is wait until you see hatches like yes, wait until you too. see <laughs> the creatures flying and then you're like okay now I can mm-hmm, go in and mm-hmm. a little bit but the 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 irony of how our cultural standards, and I'm putting that in quote, mm-hmm. of what a, what a beautiful garden looks like,
1: mm-hmm. uh, which
0: doesn't always make sense. Like if you think about it, you spend all this time picking up the leaves and then you go to the store and you buy bags of compost right. and bring you right. back and you're like, okay, wait, there, you know, maybe we can cut out the middle person here and I'll just yeah. keep this compost in place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and i love i mean i think this is another one of the elements for um, healthy backyard gardeners that has really improved over the past you know 10 15 years and and for me it came as a big like aha with um, Thomas Rainier and Claudia West's yes. book, Gardening in a Post-Wild World, this idea of green mulch. So yes. talk about that aspect of cover a little bit. Yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. And they uh, Claudia did a wonderful uh, guide for us on layered landscaping, um, which is on our website. And it really does show um, how basically these various green, um, well, ground covers really, um, or dense plantings of low growing um, plants um, actually can fill in around your larger plants and create a a green mulch that actually keeps out weeds and provides that layered approach that a wildlife garden ideally would have it's um yeah i love i love their work and we we do have examples of that um everything like i mean you could have a a, a patch of densely planted foam flower for example or mm-hmm. um you know creeping flocks or mm-hmm. you know again these are probably more in the mid-atlantic but um those are different types of you know putting these swaths of plants um some vines in um the southeast, um, it's like frog fruit is a great uh, ground cover mm-hmm. that can fill in as well in those kinds of areas.
0: Yeah. So we've had food. We've had water. Yeah. Now we've had cover. So yes. then talk about, I mean, and I think this, again, is one of the aspects of wildlife gardening or, you know, pot. Mm-hmm quote unquote, pollinator gardening, um, that people are finally really getting um, an understanding of and the resources behind us to fully manifest this in our gardens, that we don't just want creatures, birds, bees, butterflies coming to drink nectar and see a flower. We want them to have a place to actually live. And that includes all of the things we've talked about Yes. and places to nest and raise their young. Talk about this yes. a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's different levels of this for different species. So right. I mentioned the the monarch earlier um, and milkweed. Milkweed is the only plant that they can raise their young on. They they lay their eggs on the leaves, the larvae hatches and then grows into the caterpillars. That is, they they fuel themselves on the milkweed leaves because the milkweed has been co-evolved with the species to provide specific toxins that Um, as the caterpillars eat them, they're then um, toxic to their predators. So Mm. that is a beautiful, like co-evolved relationship, Um, but it really is. So, you know, a lot of times if we say, if you have milkweed in your yard, you are providing places to raise young, at least for, for monarchs, but then for other kinds of species, we have our um, native bees and our native bees are pollen specialist bees. There's 4,000 native bees um, across the U S and, depending regionally where you are, anywhere from 30 to up to 60% of those bees are pollen specialists. And what that means is that they can only go to certain um, plants that they co-evolved with to get that certain pollen. (laughs) Um, And it's partially also on their structure and the structure of the plant that they can access the pollen. It's a variety of things, but that pollen is essential for them to raise their young. So there's all these amazing um, co-evolution with these different native host plants. And we have a, a, a list now, Um, well, the the native plant finder that you can put your zip code in will give you lists of high performing plants that support butterflies and moths but we also now have a, a more a broader keystone plant list by eco region that actually has not only the butterfly and moth host plants but also um pollen specialist uh host yeah. plants so that's a, a really great resource to to do that and then the other ways of providing places to raise young is also you know for the birds um to, um, you know, hummingbirds, for example, they, it's fascinating, like letting hum, uh, spider webs and having a, a yard that, you know, you're not spraying. So your spiders are staying, which are very beneficial to getting rid of aphids and other non-beneficial pests in your yard. Those spider webs are often used by hummingbirds yeah. um, species to create their their nests. Yeah. So giving them the tools to create their own spaces for raising young is also part of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's so funny, because we were just watching a hummingbird come and collect <laughs> spider webs. And and we had just Isn't said, like, cool? we need to clean the windows. We need to clean the side of the house. And then we saw this and we're like, okay, never mind, right? Reminder, like somebody else has a use for this. And yeah. that is super important. Um, and then finally, our, our fifth metric
1: Yes, sustainable practices. So that is
0: some of what we've already
1: talked about um, in using, you know, compost and um, not using chemicals. And, um, you know, basically, uh, the big thing is not also getting rid of invasive plants. So plants that could crowd out natives. So things, unfortunately, that have been used often in the garden industry, often by Uh, in the past, you know, by contractors to just kind of fill in with uh, various plants or trees that grow really quickly. Many of these have become invasive um, over time and push out native plants. So it's, you know, replacing those invasives with natives. It's using, uh, you know, mulching to retain moisture and also, you know, xeriscaping in general. Um, I think also, you know, basically conserving water. One of the Mm -hmm. great things about native plants is their root systems are adapted to the local um, area that they're native to, but they're also great at helping with stormwater runoff because their um, roots grow and expand um, under the soil and create channels that the water can seep in more readily. So that's why so many native plants are great in rain gardens, but in general, they are great because they've also adapted to the the drought levels or or the natural, I should say, rainfall levels um, of a certain area.
0: As we come to a close, Mary, you've done such a huge amount of work over a large space of aspects to this native plant gardening and habitat gardening world we are enjoying and cultivating and supporting. When you think about your own life and you think back to your kids and that little turtle and you know the greatest hope or joy you have in this work is there anything else you would like to share with us about that and that you hope listeners will resonate with and take to heart as they start on or continue this journey themselves
1: yeah i think i think my greatest hope is that people really realize these wild natural landscapes the benefits are so important because it not only is supporting, you know, the wildlife that we want to attract, but it's providing access to nature and green spaces right where people live in any size space. I mean, you can do this in a patio or a porch with containers, you know, you can do this and create and invite this wildlife in and the fragrance of these native plants, many of them, you know, you can get, uh, you know, bee balm and 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 other types of uh, plants that provide not only Beauty, but also create a, a beautiful sense of connection to mate uh, to nature with sense and 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 smell and and so forth. And I think the ability of multiplying the number of these um, wildlife garden habitats it connects more children and people of all ages to the healing power of nature. I mean, we've, we're seeing studies now that you know bird song is correlated with increased happiness. And, um, you know, that connection we saw so much during the last several years where we were really challenged and, and, and stressed um, during the pandemic, gardening became the healing balm. And um, yeah. it gets that nature right immediately outside your door.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so when you're when you were thinking about these kinds of uh sustainable practices, where uh are are your recommendations falling on, you know, dig, no dig, till, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah. Um, I think the tilling is is one that does disrupt the soil and the natural mm. um nutrients in the soil. So it's one that I don't recommend. Um, and I just wanna make sure what you're defining, I mean, obviously how you're defining dig. I guess I just (laughs) want to be clear. Um, Dig versus tilling. Is that what you're saying?
0: Well, and I think there are, you know, there are schools of thought and yes. proponents on either side yeah. of both of those ideas. Right. Whether you are like tilling an entire field, like hoeing it, but or whether you are digging in your garden. Now, clearly, we have to dig to plant yep, a plant, plant. but yes. you don't necessarily have to dig as big or as wide or disrupt Correct. as much as we used to be encouraged to do. No, that's
1: a really good point. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to be clear where we are because I've yeah. heard different people talk about it in different ways. Right. Yes, and I did want to want to go into that. Is absolutely true that is one of the great things about especially when you're planting with natives i mean they're so adaptable you really don't have to do a giant you know hole and you don't have to dig up an entire bed you can just place them mm. you know where you want with just creating the hole big enough for their roots i mean that's that's a really ideal yeah. thing about them yeah
0: and do you encourage people to plant smaller rather than larger? And then that will um, kind of move us into uh, the plant collections that are now a part of this program.
1: Yes. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, yeah, I mean, um, obviously with native plants, um, you you know, a lot of people do love to start from seed. So that's, that's really small. <laughs> um, and putting those out, many of them have to stratify. So putting them out, you know, where they get through a cold season and can come up up in the spring, um, that's especially with milkweed. That's a really great way. Um, the one thing about native plants. Um, other than what we're doing in the greenhouse to get these native plant starter size plants which is what is sold now on the new business called gardenforwildlife.com you know yeah no i think starting smaller is better because it takes it gives it, the plant the time to truly establish mm-hmm. um, and create its own you know root system and so forth um yeah. you know and it's not spending you you're going to have results sooner and be able to um see that evolution of those plants um when you get one that's been grown you know into a much larger now obviously if you're doing a large landscaping where you need some larger specimens you're gonna you're gonna need to go bigger but um you know just for basic pollinator gardens and so forth I think it's better to start small
0: right and I think you know I I... I, I believe that there is a much better network of people, landscape designers and landscape mm-hmm. contractors out there, and this population is being trained more effectively and yeah. um, more available. But the idea that even in a big landscape, you you pick like you pick a quarter of them to be large, and then you put everything in, else in as these small things, because yes, there's exponentially less embodied energy and resources Absolutely. that have gone into this right and and that I think is one of the needles we are trying to move in the horticultural world yeah um before we go to the plant collections uh, let's finish up this section on how to get certified so say here I am in Chico California and I say oh my gosh I'm so excited about this and yeah you know I was going to join Talami's Homegrown National Park or I was going to you know join the I, I don't know the ARC from Mary Reynolds in Ireland but now I really want to do this because it's its 50th year and they're trying to make this target I'm going to do this what do you yes, do so you go to
1: nwf.org slash certify and it will take you right to our tool that can take you to the application where you can check off what you are uh, committing um, to meet all these requirements, but NWF um, org slash garden is the larger website that actually has details for every single one of these elements. So food, water, cover, places to raise young and sustainable practices, that's across the top of the website mm-hmm. as drop downs, And you can go in detail and um, find that out. And then the section on native plants has many different plant lists um, for right. your eco region. So.
0: And are these plant lists out of curiosity, cross pollinating with cross referencing with Doug Tallamy's with the Xerces society with the native plant societies. Yeah. So, so just
1: to be clear, um, the, our Monarch nectar, um, eco-regional lists, we actually did in collaboration with Xerces. Um, so those are on there and it's great because it's three seasons of Monarch nectar plants. Um, and, pollinator nectar plants in general because there's so many options there it's not just for monarchs but right um, and then also Doug Tallamy did all the research for our keystone plant lists which take the native plant finder a kind of a step beyond Um, and keystone plants are the plants um, that support um, 90 percent of uh, butterflies and moths in a specific area so um, the list give you those keystone plants um, for these various eco regions, uh, where you live so that you are then supporting, um, you know, the highest numbers for where you live based on that correlation. And he works very closely with us. And, um, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention, you mentioned some of the other programs we have partnered nationally with many of the other conservation organizations. And we particularly did that a few years ago where we really got to know each other all really well was with the Million Pollinator Garden Challenge. And that yes. was actually a network of 50 national um, conservation organizations, civic organizations and um the garden trade and um we really did share and expand and promote because one of the things that has been so compelling of why I think we've had such an increase in this is people really understanding the decline yeah. and the plight of all these species so we were able to really kind of come together and raise all boats and um, we really encouraged people to you know we do have some things that we've collaborated on together other people have other resources but um and Doug's we do encourage like if you become a certified wildlife habitat you have everything in hand to you know be on doug's homegrown national park map so you know once you do that please go over there and sign up for his map because i think it is and that's what we did with the million pollinator garden challenge we got people to to come on board and we had over a million pollinator gardens but it was all of the certified wildlife habitat people it was all of xerxes pollinator garden people it was pollinator partnerships people. It was, you know, Monarch yeah. Watch. It was everyone. And I think that's, if we don't work together on these issues, we're not going to hit what we need to hit to to actually deal with some of these declining uh, right. statistics.
0: Right. and I And I think that's important for listeners to mm-hmm. also hear and understand is these are not competitors. These are yes. collaborators. And the more the merrier, because we know we need to move this needle. And so, you know, if, if the National Wildlife Federation happens to hit 10 people that Doug Tallamy didn't get to, or Xerxes hits another, you know, hits the wrong word, but you know what I mean? Reaches, yeah. <laughs> Engages, um, yeah. right. Uh, like we need all of these voices continuing yeah. to provide encouragement, support, resources, direction for us as yes. we, as we go down this path. And, you know, I think one of the things we spoke about early in the program was the, the, progress we have made. One of the places we have made progress is the availability of native plants. And you and the National Wildlife Federation have now joined in to bridging this gap. Talk to us a little bit about this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, gardenforwildlife.com, you can go and get collections of plants that we have put together for three seasons of bloom, um, native in 38 states. And it was based on um, their wildlife value. Um, They have at least one or more keystone plants included in these collections. It was really based on looking at the research Doug did and how could we put these combinations of plants together, not only for wildlife value, but also for aesthetics and um, just. You know, environmental benefit overall. So, really excited about those. We we piloted that in 2021 and 2022. We had 300 increase in 2022 of demand. Wow. Yeah. It was wonderful, <laughs> and sales. Um, and so now uh, National Wildlife Federation has um, spun this out as its own for-profit social enterprise. That um, we have a a new person leading that. That is, you know, working to really take it to a whole nother level, expand the grower network, and um, have many, many more uh, plants available and sold to create much more habitat. So I'm really excited about that. And then the proceeds of that um, business, um, some of that will come back into National Wildlife Federation, into our programs. um, And also they are encouraging, they have a plant um, donation process where for every plant um, that's purchased, um, or maybe for every three plant that's purchased, they, they donate so many to some of the programs that we we work with and other programs for public gardens, um, like at schools or, you know, other community
0: places nationwide.
1: And that's, nice. that's just starting to get taken off. It's in the early stages.
0: <laughs> yeah. And at this point, do you really have collections for all eco regions across the country? Or are you starting with the mid-Atlantic and moving out?
1: So we started with 21 states in 2021 <laughs> and um we are now there's 38 states um that um and I I the ones where we're not in is we're only in part of Texas and we are not really um I guess west of that we don't have the rest of the southwest and we don't have the pacific northwest or california yet because the the growers that we need to engage, it just takes time to create that network and and have enough growers in those larger regions um, to provide plants there. So we're really in thirty eight states. It's still we do cross the Mississippi, so I can't say east of the Mississippi, but, um, but it, essentially, there, yeah. yeah, essentially. And there's a map you can look at it, and okay. it'll show you all the states, and you can click on your state and get your plant list.
0: And so let me push you a little mm-hmm, bit more sure. on the, the sort of depth and process for these plant collections. Um, I would say my listeners are pretty well informed on these yes. things. And, and one of the things we've talked about a, a good bit in the last couple of years is the importance of genetic diversity in our native plant system. Can you speak to how you have addressed this in the plants you are propagating and sending out into the world?
1: Yes. So that was absolutely essential. And in these first two years um, of the pilot, we created the plant um, combinations based on um, trying to, to stay true to that. And our growers were very committed to that as well. And so not only um, do we you know, look at what's native, but we also then compare it to other resources to show that Um, we're not you know going into an area where there is restoration work going on and it's a it may be a rare or inventive plant you know we're really trying to make sure that um, the more and we're trying to increase the grower network fast enough Mm -hmm. so that um, we have more plants growing um, you know in the area that that they're yeah. being shipped to, native to. But what we did for the first two years, because we needed to really prove this as, you know, it's viable as a business model, we picked plants at an eco region one level so that they were native to large swaths of, you know, the Eastern temperate zone, for example, eco region level one um, forest, Eastern forest temperate zone. and And really making sure that, you know, whoever was growing those, it was native where they were growing <laughs> and then also to where we were shipping. So that that's how we've dealt with that at this point.
0: Nice. And and was there an attention to seed grown rather than cutting yes. grown so that there was, you know, yes. that genetic diversity. Awesome. That's absolutely is fantastic. that
1: was one of the requirements we had for the growers. I will say, in the case of milkweed, that is challenging because the milkweed is such such demand um, that we worked yeah. out a process with the growers that if they in order to meet demand, um, they sometimes do need to take from kind of the mother milk yep. plant of the collected seed um, that they can only do that. You know, they follow the same uh, seed safe kind of practices that BLM and others do so that it's not, you know, but that sometimes has to happen with the plants that are in high demand. But it's very limited and they wouldn't go for like more than one cycle.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's excellent to hear. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today and for sharing uh, this expertise, this knowledge and this passion, Mary, and happy anniversary to 50 (laughs) years. Thank
1: you so much. And thank you for having me. This has been a delight. Thank you.
0: The National Wildlife Federation kicked off their Garden for Wildlife program in 1973. Since 2014, Mary Phillips has led the NWF's Garden for Wildlife and Certified Wildlife Habitat programs. Since its inception, more than 7 million people have gotten involved with the NWF's Garden for Wildlife work, and it is America's largest, longest-running movement dedicated to helping local wildlife and wild spaces in their 50th anniversary year the program is very close to realizing 300,000 cultivated wildlife habitats and gardens this is great garden life work to celebrate and to grow on Join us again next week when we continue focusing on the importance of our many kinds of garden spaces for ensuring that the great diversity of more than human wild lives of this world thrive. We'll be celebrating National Pollinator Week exploring the many beloved but highly pressured species of native North American bumblebees in conversation with Leif Richardson, conservation biologist and coordinator of the newest regional bumblebee atlas, this time in California, working with the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you, through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, with weekly tech and web support by Angel Hiracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation, of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.